This podcast contains detailed descriptions of violence and murder and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. The material discussed is based on first-hand accounts and publicly available information. In producing this podcast, every effort has been made to show respect to those affected by the crime. bashed and strangled while walking home at night, the killer has never been caught. I believe he came out of the shadows, followed down that hill to the darkest spot on that street and did what he did. 19th of September, 1952. There's been a shocking sex murder at Wilston. 400 police are now involved in a major murder manhunt. The first thing I noticed was that he had blood on his clothes and face. He gave me the impression that he wanted to get away from the locality as soon as possible. I'm Tori Shepherd, a journalist and a lover of intrigue, mystery and true crime. And this is Mapping Evil with Mike King, one of the world's top experts in criminal profiling, violent crime investigation and solving cold cases with cutting-edge geographic information system technology. He's worked with law enforcement agencies across the globe, consulted with media and universities and architected new ways to train investigators in the art of tracking and catching serial predators. One of the first things she said to me was, I know who killed Betty Shanks. Betty Shanks didn't deserve the horrible abuse she endured at the hands of a madman. She does deserve justice. This was a brutal and cowardly crime, and I can promise the public that the murderer will not escape if we can help it. This killer will be hounded relentlessly. The murder of Betty Shanks sent shockwaves across sleepy, serene Brisbane. People often refer to it as the day that city lost its innocence. In this episode, we're going to delve deep into a new suspect. Joe murdered Betty Shanks and I raced into my wife and I said he did kill her, he did kill her, there's no other answer. Over this series, we've looked at a range of men suspected of killing young Betty Shanks. Was it the policeman, the soldier? Was it a sex crime or was it a case of mistaken identity? This is someone who had a loving family. She'd even used a lotto win to pay off her parents' mortgage. On her last day alive, Betty had lunch with her mum. They went shopping. And later that night, this beloved daughter was found dead not far from her family home. Now we're into the final episode of the series on this most baffling, most notorious murder. All these years later, we have a new suspect. Episode four, Murdering Betty. Mapping a monster. Nineteenth of September, nineteen fifty-three. Tributes mark one year since the murder of Betty Shanks. Hundreds of beautiful blooms decked a quiet house in Montpelier Street, Wilston, today. Floral tributes have been arriving continuously in the past 24 hours as many people remembered the night a year ago when a young girl died defending herself from the savage attack of a sex maniac. Betty Shank's mother said today that she had received scores of flowers and letters of sympathy in the past two days. Mrs Shank said, Today is the anniversary of Betty's death, but to us, It is no different from the other days. We have our sorrow with us each and every day. Although top investigators have worked ceaselessly to track down Miss Shank's killer, no trace of him has been found. 
Detectives are still hopeful, however, that someday they will receive information which will furnish a clue to the man's identity. Now, Mike, let's go back to where we left off last episode. And look, you're a little older than me, so let me just remind you exactly what you said. It was incredible. I was actually in Australia doing some interviews with ABC, and they kind of surprised me with the Betty Shanks case, and they asked, what really will it take to break this case, in your opinion? And I shared my thoughts that in these kinds of cases, it takes someone over the course of a lifetime sometimes getting enough courage to step up and make the phone call. Perhaps the person is finally strong enough to make the call and say, I'm no longer afraid of this person. Like Deshi, getting the courage to finally step up and say, I think my father was involved. That takes an incredible amount of courage that can't happen when she's a child. It takes a while. Well, I finished the interview, Tori, and I jumped on a plane and headed back to the United States. And as I exited the plane in Los Angeles, my phone rang. And on the other end of the line was a man. And when I answered the phone, he said, I listened to your interview on the news. My father killed Betty Shanks. Oh, my. My father killed Betty Shanks. What a a cliffhanger. So who is this guy? What's his story? Well, for now, we're going to just refer to him by the name of Ken. And, and I think Ken's story is best told in his own words. So let's pause and listen to some of the conversation that I had with Ken. And for the audience, I want to just remind you, when Ken talks about Joe, Joe is his father. Okay, Mike, let's, let's have a listen to your conversation with Ken. Just a couple of minutes after that, the tramp with Betty Shanks on it turned up at the terminus. The conductor saw it walk across the road in a pitch black night. He said it was the blackest night, no moon, nothing. Well, Joe hiding amongst the shadows, the sight of Betty Shanks and the resemblance of my mother would have pulled that big trigger in his mind, I mean the big one. And once that big trigger was pulled, he was lethal. I told you about the term he used to use. They're all tarred with the one brush. I believe he come out of the shadows, followed down that hill to the darkest spot on that street and did what he did. I 100% believe that. I was associated in the investigation of several murder cases. This is senior detective Abe Duncan speaking about the case after he retired. But I do recall one of the disappointments of a life has been the, the fact that the, the matter of the murder of Betty Thompson Shanks in 1952 at the Grange in Brisbane was never solved. And until this day, I still have a theory, first advanced by Ted Chandler, about a possibility which existed at the time and which, which I believe was never properly followed up, uh, which may well have resulted in, in some sort of success. In any case, let's put it down this way that That's one of the disappointments of my service, the unsolved murder of Betty Shanks. And I believe that that will be followed up in the future. And Mike, Abe Duncan predicted it. Here we are in the future, still following it up. You know, we we used to think that time was the enemy, but in reality, with technology, with the advances in forensics, how GIS can bring all of this data together, 
time really has become the friend of law enforcement in many of these cold cases. We are seeing more cold cases solved today than we ever thought was possible 20 or 30 years ago, let alone 70 years ago. Detective Abe Duncan said that he was haunted by Betty's murder. Well, hopefully, all these years later, the information provided by everyone out there and all of the information that's coming in is helping to bring truth and closure to this case. And as you said, it's, it's 70 years from that horrific murder. And we're following up a confession, so some new information. Mike, Ken truly believes it was his father. We've talked about how important victimology is. Equally important is suspectology, or the study of who the suspects are. In this inquiry, we better understand if a predator has a motive, means, an opportunity to commit such a murder. A high percentage of mornings were quite traumatic. Like when, when Joe was in a rage, he'd stomp up and down the hallway. He'd refer to us as bludges and things like that. That was very disturbing and it was so constant. The most violent part in our life was probably up to the age of 12 or so, you know. And that's when we, you know, you think there's a predator in every house, you know. Tell me uh, first how your father, Joe, would discipline your sisters, and then we'll talk about you. There was very little respect shown for my three sisters. You could probably put it like that. Like my older sister received some brutal beatings and... Like they still called him dad. I used to wonder, how can they call this person dad? Describe how discipline was for you when something went wrong. The first time that he physically abused me when he had the pillar on my head for so many minutes, you know, and it was nearly successful what he was trying to do. But it was more mental abuse. You know, so if, if he considered I'd done something wrong, he wouldn't physically assault me, he'd assault my mother. She could antagonise him at times if she said a word out of place. For instance, that we were all going out one day, this to describe the manner in which he treated her. And she got in the back seat, you know, because of some argument or something. She got in the back seat and would really pull the trigger. You know, the old gear sticks, they had a, a knob. But as he drove, he slowly screwed that knob off, turned around and threw it right into her face hit her right between the eyes with it, you know, and fled something terrible. And why do you suppose she remained with Joe? Uh, well, I asked her that same question, and uh, I said, well, why don't you pack us up and we'll leave, you know? And, and she said, at least there's food on the table. Yeah, she watered it down to the following, which I could never, ever comprehend. You might cop a punch now and then, but there's food on the table. Mike, it's interesting because it's still an issue now, you know, 2022, as we speak, it's really hard for women to leave abusive relationships. And I can only imagine back in the 1950s, I mean, we hear Ken say, you know, why don't you just pack us up and go? But it's not that easy now and it wouldn't have been easy then. Yeah, think about how difficult it would have been just from a societal standpoint to, to, to pick up and leave. I mean, in the public, people didn't really do that. They didn't walk away from marriages and they didn't walk away from families. And then think of the uh, responsibility that his wife must have felt for that little family. Who was going to take care of the children? How was she going to take care of the children? Today, women might 
be more prone to have careers and something else to back them up. But back then, they were considered homemakers and really didn't have a way to provide for themselves. So for all those reasons, Ken's family stayed together. And Mike, you spoke to him about the impact his father's behaviour had on him. He talked about how terrible it was at times, and I'm sure that for that mother, it was terrible to have her children being put in a position to have to witness the kinds of abuses that were going on. Domestic violence is a horrible thing. It's a horrible situation where families try to hang together, and yet they know that they can't. We see this vicious domestic violence cycle repeat itself over and again, whether it was 70 years ago or today. We're so much better off today because we have resources that help families get through this. We have law enforcement agencies that are required to get people in front of a judge and in front of counseling when they know about domestic violence situations, but not 70 years ago. So, Mike, I think I've read before about how when people mistreat animals, when they abuse, you know, smaller, less powerful creatures, that's often a precursor to them becoming psychopaths or murderers later in their lives. I know that there were a number of studies back in the 1970s by the FBI and psychologists where they looked at something they later termed the homicidal triangle, Tori, and it's such an interesting thing because what they found among serial killers was that there was uh, a common thread among all serial killers. There was this problem with control. In Back then, they just said enuresis or this bedwetting problem. They, they had backgrounds that talked about fire starting and about animal cruelty. Throughout my career, I've noticed that many predators started first with animals. And there's something in their psychopathy that just disconnects them from suffering, whether it's an animal at first or a human later. It's terrifying to think about this. Did he ever kill animals in front of the family? There was a lot of cats. A cat would have kittens and the heads would be ripped off. Jay used to claim that the father of the cats had ripped the heads off. But one major incident which traumatised me to a great degree in my childhood. I was in his backyard one day and he came out from under the house with a box and a new batch of kittens and a sugar bag and a rock and a tie for the top. And I can still close my eyes and picture the scene. He walked out from under his house and he saw me on the pathway. He walked up to me. He said, put these kittens in this bag, put the rock in, tie it up, take it down to the local creek and drown it. And I used to get comfort out of the animals, you know, singing and animals are my only comfort. I think he recognised that. And he said, I'm too busy to go down. You take them down, you drown them. And I sort of had to fulfil what might happen to my mother if I didn't. I started to progress down to the creek and I thought, well, maybe he's not looking, I'll let him go. I looked behind, he was right behind me. Wanted to make sure you did it, didn't he? Yeah. I can shut my eyes now and still see that sugar bag disappearing into the deep water. I had to do it. Okay, so we're starting to, I guess, get the idea about Ken's family home. And what happened next was that his parents wanted to do a renovation and they got a tradesman in. His name was Jack. I think this was someone that Ken's dad actually knew, but also Ken's dad was a little bit paranoid and jealous and you spoke to him about that. 
Jack now uh, was doing some carpentry work that he and your mom uh, got to know each other. Here, here's a direct question. Was your mother having an affair with Jack? In her eyes at the time, looking back, she would have thought if I had an affair, it would be fatal. But it didn't matter her mind, you know. Like, in the early years of their marriage, she used to watch the clock. She used to tell me about her, watch the clock, where is he, where is he, you know. Then she'd find out he'd told lies, he was with people in hotels and women and that, you know. He controlled her so brutally that she would have been terrified of having an affair. Do you believe your father thought she was having an affair? Well, absolutely, absolutely. You know, it was common for him to accuse her, you know, and as I say, the incidents where he, she made eye contact with another male one night at a neighbor's house. She was brutally beaten. Ken, we've covered a lot about your childhood, some about your mother and your father. We call that victimology and suspectology as criminal investigators. It's this study of who people are. What I want to do now is, is just really focus on the night that Betty Shanks died. So I'd like to take you back. And again, you were just a boy at this time, but you've relived these memories throughout your life. Was your mother home on the evening that Betty Shanks died? Yeah, she certainly would have been at home. She spent every Friday night at home. She never went anywhere, you know. Your mother, the following day, what you thought was that she became very suspicious that he might be responsible for her death because of some behaviors that happened that your father did and some things your mother did. Can you describe that? Well, the first sign was she became agitated when she was reading the newspaper on the Sunday morning. That was the first knowledge we had of the murder, not far away, you know. And it was perhaps the following Tuesday. I was leaving for school and I saw two people, I know now they were detectives. One, I believe, his name was Abe Duncan. They were talking to Joe and Jack in the yard. This was early in the morning, you know. And I got home from school and I walked up the back stairs of Joe's house and she approached me hysterical and collapsed across my shoulders. The police have been here all day, she said. And she virtually fainted across my shoulders. That shows me that she believed that he did kill Betty Shanks. She may have seen a photo of Betty Shanks, the resemblance to herself, put two and two together, which I did eventually. On that night, at about 10.40pm, and remember this was 47 minutes after Betty Shanks' watch had stopped, a taxi driver named Murray Templeton picked up what he described as a well-built, Polish man near the Newmarket Hall. He gave me the impression that he wanted to get away from the locality as soon as possible, giving me the directions as he got in. The first thing I noticed was that he had blood on his clothes and face. It appeared to me at first that he'd been hit on the nose and had bled down the front of his clothing. Ashgrove was the destination at first, but apparently the fare asked to be driven to the Red Hill Post Office. It struck Templeton as strange because it was a roundabout way to reach Red Hill. His passenger sat back in the car and spoke of having had a win at cards. He walked around the back of the car toward the Kelvin Grove side of the Windsor Road and he disappeared into the darkness. He's not been seen since, and it creates a deeper mystery to this unsolved cold case. 
This is what Sergeant Bauer said about this suspect at that time. There would have been sufficient time for the murderer of Betty Shanks to have walked from where the murder was committed to the corner of Inogra Road and Ashgrove Avenue by 10.40pm. This distance would be about one and a half miles. Now, looking at the maps, it would be about three kilometers from Thomas Street to where the taxi driver picked up this bloodstained passenger at Newmarket. And, of course, you can look at that map on the website at mappingevil.com.au. You can see where Murray Templeton picked up his passenger and that really strange route he was directed to take, which eventually brought him to the Red Hill Post Office. We've also mapped out where Ken thinks his father travelled on the night of the murder. You can see how those locations tie in with the facts of the case. All right, Mike, let's get back to your discussion with Ken. Well, let's take just a little bit of a skip forward. You have uh, grown in age, and now you start having these uh, opportunities to try to ask your father because you start building suspicion that Joe was responsible for Betty's death. I was always suspicious, and I even said to people, I'm sure Joe killed Betty Shanks. His behaviour, the lies he told, you know, about Betty Shanks getting off the tram at another destination, you know, the old tram line, it looked like a second terminus because the road was so narrow they converted from two lanes to one. But about four to 500 yards in the distance, you could see where the trams would wait because there's only a single line down to the terminus. They'd have to wait for the other tram to go. And he painted the picture in our minds that she got up, up there you know, 400 metres prior. That was would have been to divert the attention away from Jack's house directly at the terminus, you know. So tell me about the first time you challenged your father or even accused him of having something to do with this. Probably about 16 or 17 years ago, I was standing in the driveway of my house and something dawned on me, you know, as if all the subconscious came up and said, Joe murdered Betty Shanks. And I raced into my wife and I said, he did kill her, he did kill her, there's no other answer. And we got out the internet, and suddenly a picture of Betty Shanks comes up, the image of my mother. And I thought, oh, no. And then it gave the addresses. And contrary to all the lies he had told, the lies were all dismantled in that one afternoon. But the day comes along where you actually are visiting him when he's in his 90s. Well, this is how it happened. Uh, my sister came to me and said, look, I'm still terrified of him, and I'm associating with him down here. Can you give me a hand? I didn't do it for him. I'd done it for that sister. The holy grail for me would be get one word of guilt out of him, you know, and I thought, this is not possible. He will never admit to it. Let's go now uh, move forward to the, the day that you're in the yard and two men show up in front. Go, let's walk through that whole scenario. He appeared from the front yard in a scowling-type manner, talking about these jokers out the front, what are they doing, you know? In his mind, he thought the possibility they may have been police. So he said, look, you just wait here, Joe. I'll, I'll go around the front and I'll sort it out. The possibility, though, the police are still there, but most certainly I think they're real estate agents or something similar, you know? So I went back after 20 minutes. And I hated doing it, and I felt as guilty as all hell. It's not in my character to torment a 94-year-old man, regardless of what had happened to me. You know, I had compassion. But I thought, I can't miss this opportunity. And I said, OK, that's, they're the police. It's homicide. 
They know about the Medishanks murder. And he just fell apart, you know, fell apart completely. And so the, the cogs are still ticking over, you know, how can I get you? And I said, look, hang on. They know nearly every detail of what happened. Under the circumstance of your age and, you know, you're not travelling too well, you know, they said, if you fill a few gaps for them, they'll go away. They won't pursue it. He seemed to comprehend what I was saying and looking for an out. 8th of October, 1952. Two suspects remain a mystery. So far, no trace has been found of two men that detectives want for questioning on the murder of Betty Shanks at Wilston on September the 19th. One of the men was seen acting suspiciously at the Grange tram terminus shortly before Miss Shanks was murdered. The other man was picked up by a taxi driver at Newmarket on the night of the murder and was reported to have had blood on his shirt. And I said, we'll just go through what they know and you just fill in the gaps. And so I commenced on my 100% belief I knew what happened. And I said, you were at the tram terminus that night, weren't you? You were there. You thought mum was having an affair. And I said, you were there. You approached a woman in a car with three kids. He mumbled agreement and a fellow called Hoveroud approached him. I said, a fellow approached you. And he was seen bewildered that all this knowledge was in my head, you know, as if the police had told me. And I said, uh, you were hiding in the shadows, all the witnesses, so almost verify that. And I said, uh, the tram pulled up. The woman got off the tram, the image of mum. He mumbled agreement again. And I said, you followed her down the road, didn't you? And I said, uh, you lost it completely and you killed that woman. A mumbled agreement, I can't say a word, but he verified it, it was just mumbling agreement, you know, acknowledgement. But then I said to him, I always had the idea that after he'd done it, living in his brain the way I did, know the functions of his brain, like on the woman's underwear, which was stripped off, there was no blood stains on it. How could a person create so much damage to a woman, blood everywhere, and not, if you ripped her underwear off, why isn't there blood stain? I had the idea that he'd cleaned himself up somewhere. So I took a punt on it. I believed he would have gone to a park because he, I know he had girlfriends in parks. And I said, which park did you go to to clean yourself up? He said, Bancroft Park. That was the only comprehensible word that he said. But in my eyes, that was the holy grail of a confession. You know, that was just the holy grail. I got that one word out of him. He cleaned himself up at Bancroft Park. And actually, he would have gone back to the murder scene with the clean hands, tried to make the, the scene look like a rape scene. So, Mike, it's so interesting. Ken calls it a holy grail of a confession. Is that the impression you got, that it's sort of done and dusted there? You know, I have a hard time with accepting this as a confession, but Ken was there. He got to witness his father's look in his eye, the way in which he responded, the emotion that he was feeling, even maybe the panic he was feeling, thinking that law enforcement was coming to get him for something. He didn't necessarily confess, but he did what we would call an admission 
And so it's a little bit different than confession, Tori, but in reality, when you put all the nonverbal behavior with the verbal behavior, it becomes really valuable. And most importantly, Ken believed it was a confession. He really does. So let's hear from Detective Norm Bauer about the postmortem. The postmortem examination has revealed that sexual intercourse did not take place and the deceased was a virgin. It would appear from the partial undressing of the body and from the position in which the body had been placed that the objective of her assailant was to make a sexual attack but that he had been thwarted in some way. It may have been that the deceased came to her senses and and screamed out, upon which her attacker made a frenzied attack on her, cruelly kicking or striking her about the face and throttling her. The grass stains on the deceased's knees and the black marks as of boot polish on her legs, allied to the fact that her blouse had been torn open and that the top of her brassiere was torn, would support the suggestion that the deceased had made a struggle for her life. This many years later, does Betty Shanks deserve to have justice? Absolutely. You know, she was buried probably within 50 metres of where Joe is buried, which is disturbing to me. The same cemetery. They're in the same graveyard, not far apart. Wow. Buried in the same graveyard within 50 metres of each other. I mean, whether you believe Ken or not, this is... This is kind of creepy. All right, Mike, I reckon now is a really good time to go back over what we know about all the suspects, and we've talked about quite a few, and see if we've come any closer to identifying the now notorious man in the brown suit. I'll tell you what, I really like it when we return to the basics because it's back when you get into the basics that you start to see things that you didn't notice before or that new information has brought and all of a sudden made more uh, interesting, more complex, or maybe not important at all. So walking through this exercise is really important and I'm looking forward to it. So let's go for it, Tori. And Mike, for my part, you have a mind like a steel trap. I tend to forget things pretty quickly. So let's just walk through it all. So the evening of Friday, 19th of September, 1952, Betty Shanks went to a night lecture at Brisbane Commercial High School and then she got the tram home. So she arrives at the tram terminus in Grange, gets off with a handful of other people and that was exactly 9.32pm. Yeah, and this this is where Marie Patton comes into the story. She apparently knew Betty and coincidentally saw her as she was exiting the tram at that same Grange terminus. Now, she not only remembers vividly seeing Betty, but she remembers this guy in the brown suit. And to me, that's really important, Tori, because this guy in the brown suit is identified by several witnesses. What was it? about his behavior, the way he looked at him, or maybe the way he lurked, who knows, that was so behaviorally significant that he stood out and was remembered. Indeed. And I I suspect brown suits may have gone out of fashion in Brisbane in 1952 after so much speculation about our, our man in the brown suit. So four people, at least four people, saw him behaving unusually at that tram stop, or as you said, lurking. And then Almost an hour before that tram arrived, 
Those witnesses reported seeing him pacing up and down near the tram stop. And Clarice Ansell said a man in a brown suit even came up to her car and peered in the back seat as if he was looking for someone. Um, That's a little creepy, a little more than lurky. So she definitely remembered that. Yeah, that's right. And don't forget this mysterious guy who also spoke to Clarence Hubble around, a guy who offered him a ride. Believing this guy in the brown suit was agitated because he'd simply missed his train. But the unidentified person didn't accept the ride, Tori. This is really significant to me. Instead, he remains behind as Hubble Round drives away. And I suppose we should point out that at that time in that place, it was probably normal to accept a lift from a stranger, unlike perhaps today. So, yeah, so the man in the brown suit said, no, he was happy to just continue to wait at that tram stop. And we don't know exactly what he was waiting for, but there are certainly some theories. Yeah, and like you, this one's the one that really makes me start to concentrate and focus in on this guy in the brown suit. Uh, The Grange Terminus, I, I mean, especially at that late hour, isn't a stopover spot for tourists or business people. I mean, this is a community. It's frequented by locals. This guy would have undoubtedly heard that police and media reports were asking for the guy in the brown suit to come forward. I mean, Betty's gruesome murder was big in the news, and yet he doesn't come forward. He never steps up, and it makes you wonder why. This lack of response led Detective Norm Bauer and the other investigators working on the case to believe that the guy in the brown suit is likely their prime suspect, probably even responsible for Betty's death. And that leads me to something else that I can't get out of my mind, and that is that from the time Betty leaves the tram to the point that neighbors report hearing her screams, nearly eight minutes pass without anything accounting for that time. That's suspicious. Isn't it? It's extraordinary how much more we would have now with CCTV and so on. But even back then, we had, we had a pretty good idea, and we had a pretty good idea that some time was missing. So the question, Mike, is what happened? So it's up to eight minutes, right? But the location of Betty's body was just two or three minutes' walk from the terminus. So something delayed her. Something held her up for a few minutes. Did she stop to talk to someone she knew, or is it maybe that, like, hovel route she was trying to help someone she thought was stranded? And look, these are questions we just don't know the answers to. Yeah, we've got to keep in mind, this is her neighbourhood. So the chance of her running into somebody that she knows is really pretty strong. But frankly, we just don't know how reliable the time frame is either. I mean, after all, this was decades ago. And these decades have slowly creeped by, clouding the remaining witnesses' memories. But here's something that we do know. We know that without question, Betty Shanks was brutally murdered. We know that the neighbors reported to the media and police that they heard screams that evening at around 9.39. These are absolutes that we know. Now we can assume, based on Betty's discovery location, that those screams were hers. And we also know the exact location of those crime scenes. Presumably the crime scene where Betty and her killer first come into contact with each other. The crime scene where the actual assault occurs, down on Thomas Street, and the place where her body is ultimately discovered in a home's backyard on Carberry Street. 
And listeners, if like me, you struggle a little bit to visualise this clearly, you can go to the Mapping Evil website. We've put all these locations on maps. You can check them out and try and puzzle it through for yourself. Yeah, and I don't think people realise how absolutely important these locations are. I mean, every single piece of information, whether it's blood spatter evidence found on the fences or a location where a piece of clothing or another article that belonged to Betty was recovered. The place where she got out of the tram terminus and starts to make her walk down the street, which side of the street she's on. Everything is incredibly important when you look at it geographically. And each movement that she makes tells us something about what's going on behaviorally. We talked about it early on, about the fact of moving from one side to the other side of a street, and why would that have happened? We talk about the evidence that's located. And yet all of this leaves us scratching our head, and it reminds us that there are still some really important questions that we need answers to. So many questions, Mike. And this is maybe where those statements from Deshi and Ken could help play a role in answering at least some of those questions. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, cold cases are invigorated by the testimony of people who are close to the victim or to people who know the suspects in the case. And when an investigator can skillfully extract the memories of these people, we can gain insight into how the victim and the suspects interacted with each other. I mean, think about this. This is such a great time to remind ourselves and our listeners that this new testimony is one more theory in a case. It's something that if law enforcement weighs it against the physical, forensic, and eyewitness testimony, they could either eliminate or really focus in on the most probable suspect, the person responsible for killing Betty Shanks. And Mike, you've done a lot of these cases, a lot of these cold cases. You are Mike Cold Case King. What seems to be missing, I guess, is the corroborating evidence, something that really pins this on someone. So there are all these interesting theories and they all have you know, bits of evidence that maybe back them up or they fit, the piece of the puzzle seem to fit. But where do you think the real corroborating evidence is? Well, it's exactly what you're saying. In order for a criminal case to move forward, it can't rest solely on a single form of evidence. It needs to have multiple forms that corroborate and validate things that we believe or that we've learned. You know, sometimes it takes a lifetime for people to share a terrifying memory, especially if it had something to do about a family member. It just is mind-blowing at times. But if we just stopped and focused on the information that Ted Dews has uncovered around Deshi's father, Sterry, for instance. Or if we add this new suspect, Joe, things continue to build and get more interesting. For instance, Tori, I was just really captivated by Joe's son, Ken, and the information that he's provided on his father's movements on the night that Betty was killed. It's pretty dang compelling. And, you know, we've uncovered two really interesting people that we're now talking about more. It makes me want to ask, did either of them own a brown suit? And we're back to the brown suit, the man in the brown suit. Can I just quickly say, Mike, as well, as you were talking, I was thinking about this whole thing as being like a magic eye puzzle, where maybe just the next sort of layer of information could bring it all all into focus. 
We do actually have a lot of information. So let's talk about these suspects. So we've discussed the potential suspects. In earlier episodes, uh, we've talked about the soldier, the doctor, the policeman on the motorbike. Are we at a point now where we can rule them out? In my opinion, based on the information that we've uncovered and the research done by professionals like Ted Dews, I think they seem less likely. And I say that based on all the public information that we've been able to scour through, including the information we've seen from forensics or physical evidence, the eyewitness accounts. These suspects just seem less probable to me, always possible. Now, personally, I've never felt like this was an opportunistic attack, Tori, that she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and some guy skulking in the bushes grabbed Betty Shanks. I think that that's always going to remain a possibility, but I don't think it's probable. Yeah, I, I agree, Mike. It's really hard to think of a stranger being just that brutal towards somebody they don't know. I mean, today you might explain it because of meth or some kind of drug addiction, but 1952 Brisbane, it's very hard to picture that level of aggression. And remember, to the point where I think her teeth were knocked out quite a distance away. Oh, the crime scene photos, I think, tell a story of a very brutal assault that included blood spatter, it included her teeth, it included personal effects of hers. It was a horribly tough crime scene, and I'm with you on this one. It does make me think a little bit about this account from Eric Sterry's daughter, Deshi, though, and I think that thing is, is worth continued investigation because based on what we've learned, Reports support the idea that Sterry seemed pretty darn troubled and he appeared to have the ability to really punish the women in his life. And he did actually know Betty, so it wasn't a stranger just picking Betty at at random. They had some kind of relationship, but what I guess we don't know is whether that was because he was a locksmith, he did some work on her family home, or whether Deshi was right and they were having some kind of romantic affair. Yeah, I mean, this might be a Beauty and the Beast story, but I don't buy it. I just think it's less likely. I mean, there's an age difference that really makes me think it's less likely. Socioeconomic differences that make me think it's less likely. And I don't know about you, Tori, but common sense kind of tells me these two weren't a thing. Now, we probably will never know the truth about their relationship, though, because here's one of the breakdowns. Sterry was never questioned about his relationship with Betty Shanks. That seems like a glaring omission, doesn't it? And I agree, it doesn't kind of ring true, although I feel as though you never know how other people's relationships work, do you, in terms of who they're going to end up with. Meanwhile, Eric is not the only suspect who could be the man in the brown suit. Who else have we got? That's right. Not in the assessment we've been doing, Tori. I mean, things really seemed to open up when Ken reached out to us and shared the story about his father, the things that he personally witnessed. And here's a biggie, things that his father allegedly told him. And and I want to thank Ken publicly for having the courage to step up after so many years. Could you imagine how frightening that would be as a child, even now in, in a much later point, to step up and say, my dad was the boogeyman. He's proof that people who at one point in their life were intimidated can get the strength to reach out and do the right thing. So I I guess what I'm rambling about here is that in my opinion, Joe is absolutely a viable suspect in Betty's murder. Even though his 
theory hasn't been fully investigated to the same degree as the suspect Sterry, for instance. And, and oh, how I wish we had more time on uh, Mapping Evil to share Ken's full compelling story in detail. It, it is my hope that law enforcement will be inspired by all of this and dig deeper into his hypotheses. Mike King, it sounds like you're pitching for a bonus episode. It's the only way I think I'm going to be able to get more airtime with you, Tori. I mean, this thing, who knows where it's going to end up. My, my hope is that there are more Kens and Deshies out there who, when they hear Mapping Evil Season 2 and Betty's story, they step up and say, you know what, I've been hanging on to something for a long time. That's how we got where we are today, quite frankly. Or, again, perhaps police will actually step up, get into those old police files, the media archives, and look at the geographic data in a different way and map out this pathway to Betty's killer. I would love to see that. I think seven decades is long enough to wait for justice for Betty Shanks. I know who killed Betty Shanks. I still have a theory, which I believe was never properly followed up. 50 hours after Betty Shanks' death, that doctor committed suicide. One of the first things she said to me was, my dad killed Betty Shanks. The policeman on the motorbike. I don't think Betty was killed by a soldier. It was the man in the brown suit who very likely killed Betty Shanks. Joe murdered Betty Shanks and I raced into my wife and I said he did kill her, he did kill her, there's no other answer. Wow, there's no other answer, Mike. I mean, again, that sounds pretty definite. But then every now and then I think back to the evidence we heard about the other suspect, the time that has passed between now and then. I really think it's one of the amazing things about this case that so many people put themselves forward as suspects or put people they knew forward as suspects. Have you come to a conclusion, Mike? You know, I go back to stepping off a plane in Los Angeles and getting that first phone call from Ken. And there's just something about that gut feeling you have in these kinds of investigations. I haven't been able to put a whole lot of evidence behind it. But I think the real thing here is we're going to leave the choice of whether Ken's story is believable to our listeners. Heck, I feel like I'm doing closing arguments in a murder <laughs> trial right now. Like a juror in a trial, Tori, they've got this incredible responsibility to form an opinion now that we've given them as many facts as we have. Ken certainly believes his father killed Betty Shanks. Remember, Ken heard and observed Joe's response about the accusation of killing Betty Shanks. Joe didn't say, no, I didn't do this, nor did he give a confession. But he did the next best thing. He gave this reconciliatory admission. I mean, it's really compelling when coupled with the photographs we have of Betty and Ken's mother, the photographs of Joe's suit that matched the taxi driver's description, shoes, his tie, the testimony of the cab driver. Now, maybe Joe was simply involved in a fist fight at a local bar, or perhaps 
his hands were bloodied after brutally murdering this brilliant, bright, young, intelligent woman on a dark Brisbane street corner. Oh, Mike, I've got chills. What's that thing uh, that you've, you've, we've talked about this before, you've got to roll around in it? You know, Tori, throughout this discussion, we've talked a lot about what I call vicariously rolling in the dirt. And holy cow, has there ever been a lot of dirt in this case? Mike, you are so good at making me visualize very specific things. And I do visualize you like literally rolling in the dirt? <laughs> you know, Tori, we really have gone down a lot of weird rabbit holes, to use a term of yours. You'd know by now that as an investigator, I don't just rely on my gut alone. I mean, technology is at our fingertips. And today, as law enforcement professionals, we have not only technology, but we have this ability to tip the scale against perpetrators like the vile human that killed Betty Shanks. And this technology, this is the cool part. It's readily available to law enforcement to help them solve crimes like this, no matter how cold they might be. So my gut's telling me that this is still a solvable crime. And I really do believe that GIS has a role to play in finding justice for Betty Shanks. Your gut, GIS, and a little roll in the dirt. We've got this, Mike. Mike, I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. There couldn't be a nicer guy to take us inside the minds of psychopaths and killers and ritual abusers and some of the most terrifying people on the planet. Seeing how you handle that and keep your cool and your humour has been really fascinating. (laughs) Well, thank you, Tori. I mean... Getting to know Betty Shanks has been more of a privilege than I can ever express. And uncovering her case with you has been an absolute rare treat. Thank you. If you found the content covered in this podcast distressing, support is available from Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if you have any information about any unsolved crime, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000 or go to crimestoppers.com.au. Research for this episode included media reports sourced through Trove Archives, Ken Blanche's book, Who Killed Betty Shanks, resources held at the Queensland Police Museum, and the third edition of Ted Dew's book, I Know Who Killed Betty Shanks. There's a link on the Mapping Evil website if you're interested in a copy. And finally to Ken, who was so generous with his time, we want to say thank you for trusting us to help you tell your story. This is a Bowstead Geospatial Technologies production. This episode was narrated by me, Tori Shepherd, and Mike King. Production and sound design by Fig Media with support from Circa 3 and Podbooth Studios. Artwork by Telbrand Creative. Our supervising producer is Kim Douglas. Our executive producer is Raquel Jackson. And finally, this production would not be possible without the support of Esri Australia. Esri Australia.